Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. I have been so excited to dive into this book together. I've been praying for this, been so excited, been talking with many of you about this sermon series, and I just cannot wait to dive in. But before we dive in, I want us to do a little bit of introductory work this morning. We do this whenever we begin a sermon series, just because I want to give some background. I want to give some understanding of why we are studying this book in, uh, in the words of a, a theological textbook. If you go through a systematic theology, uh, you'll see usually chapter one is something called prolegomena. Prolegomena means pro beforehand. Legomena is to say, to speak. So this is what we're saying before we start, to say beforehand. So consider this a prolegomena sermon. Before we dive in to chapter one, verse one, I want to ask this very simple question. Why was the book of Mark written? Why was the gospel of Mark written? I wonder if you know who wrote it. Obviously, you know it's the gospel according to Mark, so you know Mark wrote it. But I wonder if you know who Mark is and why he wrote this book. Because I believe that if we understand why he wrote it, who he was writing it to, where he was writing it from, I think we will understand what we are supposed to glean from this study as we go through this book. So I want to just read the opening verse together. And then I want to pray and ask God's time, ask God to bless our time this morning as we give careful attention to that question. Why was this book written? Mark chapter one, verse one, Mark opens his gospel with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. These are the words of the living word of God. Let's ask God to implant their truths upon our hearts this morning. God, thank you for your word. As we sang earlier, we ask that you would speak, O Lord, that you would give us an understanding, that we would feel as if we were there reading from Mark's scroll in that first century. Give us understanding as to what the gospel produced in Mark's own life. Give us understanding as to why this is such a powerful book. Fix our eyes on Christ, that we would love him more, that we would be transformed by him. So we just ask that you would be gracious. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So as we come to an introduction of the Gospel of Mark, and we have a question of why was this book written, I want to ask, why are we studying this book? As we understand why this book was written, I think we will understand why we should be studying this book. And I just want to give you two main goals, two main overarching reasons for why we are studying the Gospel 
of Mark. Number one, I want us in this study, the reason why we're going through the gospel of Mark is to stare at Jesus. I want us to stare at Jesus. We've spent the last couple of years in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. So we've seen a picture of Jesus's second coming. Obviously we saw in chapter one of Revelation, a picture of who Jesus is. But we've looked in Revelation at his second coming and we have longed for his appearing. We have, even as we sang earlier, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, we want him to come back. In our study of Daniel, we saw a little bit of the first coming of Christ and then we saw a lot about the second coming again. But here in the gospel of Mark, we are just going to fix our eyes on Jesus. I want us to walk with him. I want us to hear him speak. I want us to watch as he teaches, watch as he heals people, watch as he does miracles. We will stare at the one whom Hebrews tells us is the exact representation of God. If you want to see God, look at Jesus because Jesus is God. Even as we studied this last week in 1 John chapter 4, he is 100% God and 100% human at the exact same time. So we're going to stare at our Savior. J.C. Ryle says it this way, It would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels much more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable. It's not wise to exalt one part of the Bible over the expense of another. But I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little bit more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? Well, I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king. But it is far better, far better to be familiar with Jesus himself. To see the king's own face and to behold his beauty. That's what Mark wants us to do. That's why even in the gospel of Mark, Mark just goes straight to Jesus. There's no genealogies. There's no birth announcements. He just goes straight to looking at Jesus being baptized because he wants us to take our eyes and fix them on Christ. He wants us to see Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his splendor. And he wants us to feel as if we are there in the moment with Jesus and with his disciples. He uses something called the historical present over 150 times where other gospels would just simply, other gospel authors would just simply use past tense. It's, it's like you're telling somebody a story about something that happened. Most people would just say, so we went here and then we said this and then we did this. But then there's those people that take that past event and they speak to you about it as if it were in the present. And then he was saying this and, and then he was doing this and and then he said this, and, and I, I was responding these different ways, and you're, you feel like you're there in the moment. That's what Mark does. Mark is so colorful. He's fast-paced. Many of you know one of his favorite words to use in this book is immediately. He uses that word 42 times. Matthew uses it seven times. Luke uses it once. Mark is a completely different gospel. It's a completely different uh, pace. 
It's like, it reminds me, as you read through this book, it reminds me of, remember those uh, old-fashioned projector slideshow things that had the little cards, little pictures, and you put them in, and then you had the clicker, and you would click the button, and it'd go, and then you'd see a picture, and then you'd talk about it, and then you'd click the button, and then it'd give you a picture. Anybody remember what I'm talking about? Some of you don't. That's what the Gospel of Mark is. The Gospel of Mark is Mark standing with a clicker going, there was a picture of Jesus. Let me tell you everything that happened. Move on. Next picture, next picture. He's just constantly moving narrative to narrative, story to story, because he wants us to just always be amazed at Jesus. The way he tells stories about Jesus, very different from all of the other Gospels. He draws us in. There's an overarching question that we'll talk about next Lord's Day, Lord willing, but he draws us in with this question, who is Jesus? And people are constantly answering that question in different ways in his gospel. But he wants us to be able to answer that. He wants us when the disciples in Mark chapter four see Jesus calm the storm and they say, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? He wants us, his readers to go, ooh, pick me, pick me. I know, I know. That's the son of God. He wants us to stare at Christ. Now, why is this our goal? Why is this so important? I think two reasons why it's important. Number one, we have a tendency to look for ourselves in the text before we ever look for Christ. And number two, we have a tendency to look for practical, immediately relevant, immediately livable application in the text. Now, we should always be looking for immediately practical, immediately livable application in the text. That's a good thing. We want to live out the Bible. But here's where I think we struggle. And honestly, here's where I think some of you may struggle with reading your Bible because you read your Bible and you open to some passage that's a narrative about somebody else and you look and you go, okay, where am I in this text? How is this at all about me? And you go, I don't really see me in here. I don't really know what to do with this. And then practical, livable application. You look at it, story of David and Goliath. What am I supposed to do with this? There's a little dude, fights a big dude, kills the big dude. What am I supposed to do with that? Do I find somebody taller than me and try and kill him with a slingshot? Like, what am I supposed to do with this story? So what I want us to do with the Gospel of Mark is I want us to take those two issues, a tendency to look for ourselves first and a tendency to look for application immediately relevant, immediately livable. I want to take those two and flip them over. I want us to always be looking at Jesus Not for ourselves, not for where are we in this text? What does this say about me? No, I want us to just stare at Christ. And then I want the main application. Sure, there's going to be a lot of practical, relevant, livable realities in this gospel. But I want the main application to simply be staring at Christ and being in awe of him. Because brothers and sisters, doing that will change everything else in your life. The appropriate response when we read the gospel of Mark is not, what do I need to do? It's how amazing is Jesus? I'm afraid that some of us have grown so familiar with Jesus that we don't even do what the demons do. The demons know that God exists, James chapter one says, and they tremble, they shudder. Maybe we know that Jesus exists, but we don't even shudder at the glory of God anymore. 
I think often we come to church, we gather as the church, and we think, this is what I hope we're talking about today. My anxieties, my fears, my worries, my sin, my struggles. I hope we're talking about these things. And then we start to dive into the word and we feel like, well, this sermon's not quote unquote relevant for me. Often what we think that we need to hear is not actually what we really need to hear. That's why we preach through books of the Bible. And that's why I want the main overarching goal of our sermon series in the gospel of Mark to just stare at Christ. We must look to Jesus long before we ever look to ourselves. So goal number one, as we go through the gospel of Mark is stare at Christ. Make your life one unflinching gaze at the glory of Jesus. Why? Point number two, the second goal. Because if you do that, you will be transformed by him. I want us to be transformed by Jesus. I want to stare at Christ, point number one, main goal number one in our sermon series, stare at Jesus. And then goal number two, I want us to be transformed by him because of our staring at him. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter three. 2 Corinthians chapter three gives us a paradigm of what happens if you just fix your eyes on Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, because we're beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So how are we transformed? We're transformed by staring at Christ. So what we see in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the man who finds the treasure in the field and then sells everything that he has to gain that field, to gain that treasure. Why does he, why does he sell everything? Because he's looking at all of his stuff? No, he doesn't care about his stuff because he's staring at the treasure. Some of you might be here this morning saying, I don't really feel like my life is changing. I don't really feel like there's any transformative power at work in my soul. I don't feel like I've been fighting sin the way that I should. I don't feel like I've been fighting anxiety, worry, fear, lust, uh, greed, temptation. I'm not fighting it the way that I should be. It's just not working. It's not successful. I've been working hard. I've been doing everything that I know to do. I have accountability partners, but I just don't see any change. And to that, I would say, I know that you've been fighting, but have you been looking? Have you been staring at Christ? We are all glory hounds. We are constantly sniffing for glory, wanting to be satisfied by glory. And if something other than Christ captivates your attention, catches your eye, it will become your primary pursuit. And if it's not Jesus, it will lead you to hurt, loss, pain, grief, and ultimately death. So I want us to stare at Christ so that we would love him and be transformed by him, that he would become our greatest desire. G.K. Chesterton said, when we cease to worship God, we, don't, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. We worship our way into sin because we're worshiping something. We're loving something more than we love Jesus. And so therefore we have to worship our way out of sin. We have to worship our way out of sin by staring at Christ and being transformed by him. So those are the two reasons why I want to study this book. 
to stare at Jesus and to be transformed by him. But I began by asking the question, why was this book written? I believe the reason why this book was written was because Mark is the perfect example of someone who stared at Jesus and had his life completely transformed. And so for the rest of our time, I want to just ask, what is Mark's story that led him to write this book and how would it inform the way that we would study it as we dive in? Well, Mark is a man mentioned by name in the New Testament eight different times. He's only mentioned by name eight different times. I believe that he's in the Gospel of Mark, not mentioned by name. I think that he's actually in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14. We'll get there when we get there. So maybe a ninth time, but not by name mentioned. The first mention of him by name is actually in the book of Acts. So turn there really quickly. We're going to do a little bit of a biographical sketch of this man. And I think that it's incredibly important to understand it because it sets the entire stage for the purpose of this book. In Acts chapter 12, we read in verse 12, this is the account of Peter being released from prison. Miraculously, the angel comes and leads Peter out. This is where Rhoda is uh, the servant girl. The, the early church is meeting in this house and they're praying for Peter's release. Well, whose house are they at? Whose house are they praying at? Verse 12, when he, Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary. So when he realized he's released and set free, he goes to the house of Mary. Who's Mary? The mother of Jesus? No, not that Mary. This is Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is the first mention of Mark. We know him by Mark in the gospel according to Mark. His name is John Mark. Mark is just short for John Mark. In the first century, John is one of the most common Hebrew names. Mark is one of the most common Roman names. So this dude is one of the most common dudes you'll ever find. He's just a normal guy. And I love that because even regarding the Gospels, you've got Matthew, who is a follower of Jesus, one of the 12 disciples, tax collector, super brilliant with money and math and able to figure all those things out. You've got Luke, who's a doctor and goes on a mission to figure out the eyewitness testimony, the investigative testimony of all of the people who were involved in the life of Christ so he could write down an orderly account for Theophilus. And then he goes along with Paul on missionary journeys to document what's going on. You've got John, who is another, another disciple, just like Matthew. But you've got Mark. He's not one of the 12 disciples. He's not a learned man. He's an ordinary guy. He probably wasn't one of the 12 disciples because he probably was too young to be one of the followers of Christ, of the original 12. He's just an ordinary guy, but he's surrounded by extraordinary things. First, he has a mom who owns this house that becomes really the hub of the, the original church, the first meeting of the church. I mean, really, you could say that the very first church building is Mark's mom's house. I believe that it's actually the upper room as well. It's where Jesus uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper, the, or the Last Supper, and instituted the Lord's Supper. So he has an amazing uh, access to early church people, to early church fathers, to the apostles. He also has a really famous cousin. You know him from Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. We are told that Mark's cousin is Barnabas. 
So John Mark has a very famous cousin named Barnabas, and Barnabas has a really good friend named Paul, the apostle. So Mark has apparently a decently wealthy mom who owns a really nice house where all the early church is gathering. He also has a family member, a relative, a cousin who's really famous in the early church. And so he is able to hang out with Paul on a missionary journey. Turn in Acts chapter 12 to verse 25. Barnabas and Saul, this is going to be Paul, returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So this ordinary dude has a really extraordinary surrounding. He has a mom who's he loves the Lord and loves the church, has cousin Barnabas, has uh, inroads with the Apostle Paul, and goes on the very first missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul. So things are looking up for this guy. And it's here that we'd say, well, no wonder God picked him to write this gospel, because look at, you know, his pedigree. Look at how awesome he's just, this guy's amazing. Everything's going well. He's doing awesome. And I would say yes, but not so fast. Acts chapter 13, verse 5. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues and the Jews. They all said, John is their helper. He's going with them. And then drop down to chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos. They came to Perga, which is an ancient city in modern-day Turkey in Pamphylia. And John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, we have no record as to why John Mark left. But in the middle of the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, John Mark says, see you. Again, we don't know why, but we know that it was something bad because the very next time that Paul has an opportunity to take Mark with him, with Barnabas, to go on a second missionary journey, Paul says no. It's in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's go back. Let's see how the first missionary journey went and see how these churches are doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them. He's my cousin. He's a believer. Let's take him. But, verse 38, Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along. The one who had deserted them, that's a very harsh word, deserted. As a, a similar root as apostatized. He didn't just say like, ah, I, I think I need to go home. I have stomach, stomach issues. I, I can't do this anymore. No, he fled. Even with Barnabas and Paul pleading, stay, don't leave. He said, I'm out of here. Maybe persecution was getting too intense. Maybe he was afraid. We don't know. But Paul says, whatever it is, he deserted us and we're not having him back. And you guys know there occurred, verse 39, this sharp disagreement. That split Paul and Barnabas, and we never see them repairing that split. We never see Paul and Barnabas coming back together ever again. And it's over John Mark. So here's this ordinary guy that has extraordinary surroundings, and he is set up for success. I mean, this guy is just, you couldn't ask for a better background to propel you into ministry. He has this amazing opportunity to follow the Lord, to preach the word. 
to be Christ's representative to the world around him, and he fails miserably. He fails. He goes home, scared, back to Jerusalem, back to his mom's house. I wonder if that sounds like anybody else in the Bible to you. An ordinary guy, no special pedigree, somebody who just wants to follow Jesus, tell the whole world about him, but ends up failing miserably and bailing on Jesus at the very end. Remember Acts chapter 12? Who ran from prison back to Mark's house? It was Peter. Where did Mark go after he fled from Perga? Because he was terrified. He went back to Jerusalem. He went back to his mom's house. And here's how I picture the scene. Peter and other church leaders are sitting around the table. Mary's cooking is as good as it always is. Just fills the whole house with amazing smells. And they're just enjoying talking about strategies for the gospel work. And the door creaks open and in walks Mark. And everybody goes, Mark, you're here. Where's Barnabas? Where's Paul? And you can see it in Mark's face. And his eyes start to well up with tears. And he said, I left. Couldn't take it. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't trust that God would protect us. I saw the anger of the crowds against Jesus and the church. I couldn't take it. And everybody kind of looks down and sees Mark being dejected. Mark walks past the table and says, I failed everyone. I let Barnabas down. I let my spiritual hero, the Apostle Paul, down. I failed him. But more than that, I failed Jesus. And as he walks away to go to his room, he mutters under his breath, there's no way Jesus can use me now. And I see Peter go, uh, gentlemen, will you excuse me, please? And he gets up and he walks over and he knocks on Mark's door, opens it up, says, hey, can I tell you a story? There's a guy that I know really well. He loved Jesus. His only desire in the whole wide world was to just tell everyone about him. And there was this little girl that said, are you a follower of Jesus? And this man, terrified, said, I've never known the man. And Mark goes, you know, it sounds like me. Who could that be? And Peter says, it's me. And Mark's eyes get wide and he goes, what? Tell me the story. And Peter says, I've got a story to tell you. And they sit down in Jerusalem and they start walking through Peter's testimony. And Mark starts writing it down. 
From that moment on, when Mark goes back to Jerusalem, we know that Mark and Peter became such good friends. Peter actually calls Mark his son in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Peter starts taking him around. What Luke was to Paul, remember Luke is just with Paul, always on the missionary journeys, all the way to Paul's very death. Mark is to Peter. Mark will not leave Peter's side from that moment on. Even when... Paul, or Paul and Barnabas split in Acts chapter 15 and Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. Right after that, Mark's going to go to Rome where, where Peter is and Mark's going to stay in Rome and write the gospel of Mark with Peter in Rome. The gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter through Mark's pen. The early writers of the church, uh, the, the early church fathers identified Peter as the source and Mark as the writer, Eusebius, uh, Papias, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Origen. I have so many quotes from all of these guys. Let me give you just a couple. They all attest to Mark writing down the gospel from Peter's perspective and from his eyewitness testimony. So Mark's not a disciple, not one of the 12, but Peter is. Just one church father, uh, Papias, born in the late 50s AD. So just a a couple decades removed from Jesus dying, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven. He's a bishop of the church in Hierapolis. And he said, quote, Mark, who is declared the stump fingered because he had really small fingers in comparison with the stature of the rest of his body, was the interpreter of Peter. Papias also, he's about 30 years old, when he meets the apostle John and becomes the disciple of John. And he says this, the elder John testifies that Mark wrote accurately all that Peter remembered, not in a chronological order, but according to everything that Peter spoke. So Papia says, John told me he he read Mark's gospel and said, that's exactly how it happened. And that's exactly what Peter told Mark. Irenaeus says the same thing. Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, transmitted to us in writing the things preached by Peter. Clement of Alexandria said the same thing. These are all people in the late first century, early second century. So from about 60 AD to about 120 AD, all of these people are saying, we know that Peter's testimony was given to Mark. Mark wrote it all down. He followed Peter wherever he went in Rome. And so we have exactly what Peter remembered. Justin Martyr said that Mark is the memoirs of Peter. Peter's fingerprints are all over the gospel of Mark. We even heard it this morning as our brother JJ read this morning. Did you hear? The angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. It's not mentioned in any of the other uh, gospels. It's mentioned there. Why? Because Peter's saying, Jesus called me out by name. He used this angel to call me out by name and restore me. Peter had that amazing experience in Acts chapter 10 with the, the, the sheet that was dropped out of the sky with all the unclean animals that God says, I declare them all clean now. Only in the gospel of Mark, no other gospel, do we have a phrase that says, and thus Jesus declared all food clean. Even the whole book of Mark as a whole is identical in outline to the sermon that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 10. Identical. Where Peter starts in Acts chapter 10, that's where Mark starts his gospel. Nothing seems to happen in this book without Peter being present. 
Mark gives us several quotations from Jesus in Aramaic as if Peter is telling him he can hear Jesus' voice ringing in his ears. And he's recounting that story to Mark. So my friends, if you want to hear Jesus, you need to listen to this gospel. Mark is writing mid-50s to mid-60s A.D., so 25 to 35 years after the death of Jesus. That's important for several reasons, but one that we'll talk about today, we'll talk about several other reasons next week, but one reason why that's incredibly important is because of who was in power as he's writing. It's a very well-known man by the name of Nero, persecuting Christians. Mark is writing his gospel from Rome with Peter, about to be killed. Peter's about to be crucified upside down. So Mark is writing from Peter's perspective. Remember, what's the epistle of 1 Peter all about? It's written to saints who are suffering. Why did Mark write his gospel? Through the knowledge and the testimony of Peter, why is Mark writing what he's writing? He's writing to suffering saints. And he's writing a gospel that he knows will encourage them and keep them in their hour of testing. Is it any wonder that the gospel of Mark includes that portion of Jesus's parable of the sower and the soils? And one of the soils, that rocky soil, Mark identifies as Jesus's teaching that it's the soil that there's persecution that crushes in and chokes out the word. And so he's telling his readers, don't let persecution choke out the gospel. Is it any wonder that Mark includes that phrase that no other gospel writer includes about Jesus's temptation in the wilderness? He says, and Jesus was with the wild beasts. He's writing to people who probably knew family members or church members that had been enshrouded in animal skins and thrown into the Colosseum to be killed by wild beasts. They were with wild beasts. And Mark is writing to say, your savior was with them first. Look to him. Is it any wonder that Mark would include a very detailed assessment of Peter's denial of Christ? And that Peter was subsequently restored to remind those that were being persecuted that even if they had actually denied Jesus, that there could be restoration, that there could be hope. The situation for the Christians in Rome was too intensely critical for them not to read this gospel. So as we read this gospel, you need to imagine yourself in a catacomb, in a cave somewhere, terrified of people hearing you, gathered together, huddled around a tiny little candle, reading this book and being spurred on in the midst of whatever trial and suffering and pressure and persecution you're going through, knowing that your Savior is with you. That's why Mark wrote this book. Now, here's this ordinary guy, has an extraordinary background, but fails miserably. But as he hears Peter's testimony and as he stares at Jesus, he's completely transformed. We know how Peter's story ends. Peter had given the testimony of this gospel to Mark. Mark wrote it all down. And then Peter is killed by being crucified upside down somewhere between A.D. 64 and 68. Jesus, Peter is crucified upside down because he doesn't, want, uh, doesn't feel worthy enough to be crucified right side up like his Savior. 
tradition tells us that. And so Peter, who once denied Christ, restored by Christ, fruitful and effective ministry for Christ, and then dies for Jesus, being faithful to the end. That's who Mark's looking to as he's staring at Christ. That's who Mark is being helped by. So how does Mark's story end? Well, turn to Philemon. Turn to Philemon. There aren't chapters in Philemon. It's so short, it's just its own chapter. So typically we just say Philemon 24. I'll just go straight to verse 24. We can start in verse 23. This is Paul. Paul's writing to Philemon. And Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So now Mark, who in Acts 15, Paul says, should not be with them on their missionary journey. He deserted us. He should not be with us. He's, he's just kind of useless at this point. He's holding us back from gospel ministry. That man, at the very end of Paul's life, is called by Paul a fellow worker. And then if you turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, this is the last letter that Paul's going to write. He's writing it from jail. He's about to be beheaded by Nero. So all of these stories collide together. But here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is Paul's last words. These are his last words. He says, only Luke, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, only Luke is with me. Again, Mark is to Peter what Luke is to Paul. And then he says this, pick up Mark and bring him with you because he is useful to me for service. Here's Mark bolstered by the encouragement of the gospel, staring at Jesus after failing Jesus miserably. He's staring at Jesus. Peter is encouraging him, giving him testimony of the gospel of Jesus. He writes it all down. And by staring at Christ, he is transformed by Christ. And by being transformed, he is propelled back into fruitful ministry. He is now useful to the apostle Paul, such, so much so that Paul says in his dying letter, he says, I really want Mark to be with me because he's useful. I want to commission him to keep on being faithful and fruitful in ministry. We're told by Eusebius that Mark founded the church in Alexandria, which is one of the most important churches in early Christianity. He's one of the first people to go from Jerusalem to Africa to bring Christianity to Africa and to found a church in Africa. And just like his spiritual father, though once denying Jesus, he was restored by Christ, he was put back on a path of faithful ministry, and he was faithful and fruitful to the very end. We are told that Mark died by being dragged to death, a rope tight around his neck in the streets of Alexandria in AD 68, because he would not stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a story that Mark, a follower of Christ who fails miserably, is encouraged by another follower of Christ who had failed miserably, but who had been restored by Jesus, now put on a path of fruitful, faithful, effective ministry to the very end. And he makes it. How? 
Why? What changed? Brothers and sisters, what changed is Mark took his eyes off of everything else in this world and he fixed them on Jesus. And Jesus transformed his life. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing book that we have the privilege of diving into. And I pray that as we begin next Lord's Day with chapter 1, verse 1, that you would be pleased to encourage our hearts to point us to Jesus, that we would fix our eyes on the goodness of the gospel and the glory of God. May we fix our eyes on Christ and be transformed by him even this day. God, I pray for those here that maybe like Mark would say, I have failed, I have denied Christ, I have done something that I feel is just unredeemable. And I can't be restored. And there's no way I can be involved in faithful, fruitful, effective ministry. May they hear the words of Christ this morning to Peter. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then tend my lambs. Do you love me? Not, will you promise never to sin again? Not, will you promise not to bail on me or deny me or family? But simply, do you love me? Father, grow our love for your son this day and every opportunity that we have to study your word together. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.